Welcome to Had to Be There, the podcast that allows you to explore the world's greatest destinations through the stories of those who have been there. Here to ignite the wanderlust within, your host and favorite travel planner, Kelly Acevedo. Assalamu alaikum. And welcome back to the Had to Be There podcast. I am your host, Kelly, and this is episode 64. I am so excited to be back here with you guys. I know that the last two episodes that came up in your feed uh, were pre-scheduled because I was away on vacation. I had an incredible 10 days exploring Universal Orlando Resort, Walt Disney World, and taking my very first Disney cruise aboard the Disney Wish. And I can't wait to tell you all about it, but it's a story for another day for sure. In today's episode, we have a very special guest on the podcast. We will be chatting with Jeremy McGowan, who is a veteran of the United States Air Force and has served in various capacities around the world, including the Middle East and South America. He currently works as a program manager for a $12 billion contract through the Department of Defense and just so happens to be one of the leading voices in the UFO UAP community. And Jeremy has a fascinating story to share with us today. But before we get into that, you know what we have to do. Yes, that's right. Welcome back to the Weekly Roundup, where I am here to keep you in the loop on all the latest news and promos you may have missed from Disney and beyond. We have so much news that has come out of Walt Disney World in the last week, so let's jump right into it. Beginning on May 31st, we can start booking your next Walt Disney World vacation for 2024. And they're rolling out lots of updates to make planning a visit even easier. Beginning on January 9th, 2024, guests with date-based tickets will no longer need to make theme park reservations. Park reservations were born out of necessity during the pandemic to help keep crowds at a manageable level. But I know a lot of people who are going to be glad to see this process go. For reference, date-based tickets are the standard tickets that you would purchase when booking a Walt Disney World vacation package. So this more than likely applies to you. (laughs) And hey, annual pass holders, I've got news for you too. Walt Disney is rolling out good-to-go days for you to visit the parks without needing a reservation. This will be in addition to the recent updates, which offers pass holders the opportunity to visit theme parks after 2 p.m. without needing a park reservation, except, of course, for Saturdays and Sundays at Magic Kingdom Park. (laughs) Good-to-go days may vary by park, and past blockout dates and capacity limitations continue to apply, but stay tuned for more details as the new good-to-go process rolls out. And there's more. Disney will be simplifying the Disney Genie Plus experience, allowing guests to plan with Genie Plus service and individual Lightning Lane selections before the day of your park visit. 
They are currently hashing out all the details to help maximize your time in the parks for 2024 visits. So stay tuned for this. Hopefully this means not having to be on the app at 7 a.m. to book your first lightning lane uh, and all that good stuff. And speaking of maximizing park time, Disney Deluxe Resort Hotel and Deluxe Villa guests will continue to enjoy early theme park entry and extended evening hours at select parks on select days through 2024. So that's a little extra bonus if you're staying at one of the deluxe resorts or in one of the villas uh, that you get to enter the parks before other guests and you get to stay later than other guests. So that's always nice. It kind of thins the crowd a little bit and gives you some more time to ride your favorite rides or have your favorite snacks. But don't worry, I've saved the best for last. Can I get a drum roll, please? Disney dining plans are making a comeback as an option for guests staying at Disney Resort hotels. Starting January 9th, 2024, families can enjoy the added convenience and peace of mind of prepaid meals with two popular options, the Disney Quick Service Dining Plan and the Disney Dining Plan. So I'll have tons more information on that. I know everybody's just been waiting and waiting and waiting for Disney Dining Plans to return. And here we are. (laughs) We made it, guys. We did it. So just as a reminder, 2024 packages will be available to book beginning May 31st. That's just one day after my birthday, if anyone's keeping track. So please reach out to your favorite travel planner who specializes in Disney destinations to get started. And if you don't already have one, let me know. I just spent a week with some really incredible agents, and I would be more than happy to connect you with someone in your area. So that's all for this week. I'll be back next and every week with more news and promos from Disney and beyond right here on the Weekly Roundup. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to an otherworldly experience that will transport you to a land cloaked with intrigue. Our journey today will take us to a place where ancient and modern collide in a harmonious blend, offering a glimpse into a rich and vibrant culture that has stood the test of time. But wait, there's more. Our adventure also includes a sighting that will make your heart race and your mind spin. A close encounter of the inexplicable kind. Join us as we explore this incredible location, one that has captivated the imagination of many and continues to be a source of wonder and fascination. Get ready to lift off in an extraordinary journey that will challenge your perception of reality and leave you with more questions than answers. Prepare to phone home as we explore this mesmerizing destination where magic and mystery await around every corner. This is Jordan.
Jeremy, welcome to the Had to Be There podcast. I am so thrilled you could be here with me today. Thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. Before we jump into your Had to Be There story, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little about you? Sure. So my name is Jeremy McGowan. I uh, currently live in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, and I had sworn to myself that I would never go to a desert again. And now I'm living in the middle of one. Uh, <laughs> we'll get into the reasons why for that, I'm sure, in a little bit later. But uh, I currently work as a uh, defense contractor. I am the program manager for about a $12.1 billion contract uh, through the U.S. Army. And uh, I have the luxury of now working from home. Ah. Isn't that nice? <laughs> it is. My my commute to the office every day involves uh, trying not to spill my coffee while stepping right? over the dog. <laughs> Good for you, Jerry. <laughs> uh, so I would love to hear a little about your um, beginnings, I guess. Uh, how did you come to be in Nevada, of all places? After, uh, well, Nevada came right after I had, uh, left the country of Ecuador. I actually lived in Ecuador for about five years. Wow. Uh, I had, uh, I had a military career. And then when mm -hmm. I got out of the military, I ended up working in the oil and gas operations in the Appalachian basin, uh, specifically in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Wow. And, uh, I got really burned out on that. Sure. And a, uh, a friend of mine had started up a, uh, an alternative energy facility in Miami. And uh, I went and joined with him in Miami and we started to expand and we decided that we wanted to get out of the United States just due to hyper regulation and taxation. And we started mm. scouting through South America and I ended up in Ecuador and uh, we stayed there for about five years, I'd say. Uh, and built this alternative fuels company from the ground up and the Ecuadorian government came to us one day and said, Hey, you guys did a really amazing job. Thank you for building this. It belongs to us now. And, oh. <laughs> uh, in, a, in the course of about 24 hours, I ended up losing just about everything left the country no. with a suitcase and came back to the U S so I wow. started, yeah, started scrambling for work and, uh, ended up with a software company out here in Vegas and then ended up, uh, from the software company now with the defense contractor. Wow. That's an insane story. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the abridged version. <laughs> that's wild. Now, where are you from originally? I was born in Washington, D.C., uh, hmm. grew up, uh, for a few years, uh, just outside of DC in Manassas, Virginia, mm -hmm. but I consider West Virginia home. Uh, most of my formative years were, uh, North central West Virginia. Okay. Now, did you get to, uh, do much traveling as a kid? Yeah. Uh, mostly within the United States. I have sure. very fond memories of lying on the back window ledge of my grandfather's Lincoln town car while we drove oh all over the United States to places like the Grand Canyon and petrified forest and things like that. Uh, as a, as a child, I did go overseas once or twice to uh, Venezuela and, and places like that. But, uh, most of my, most of my childhood travel was, you know, during the summer for school and, and things like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you traveled around 
by car with your grandfather. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I love memories. it. Yeah, exactly. Do you feel like there was ever a moment in your life that you can pinpoint like this is when the travel bug bit me? Like this is when I knew I wanted to see other places and experience other cultures. Yeah, it would have been in high school, actually, um, in 1987, I think it would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taking Spanish in high school and our Spanish class took a trip to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I was, you know, 16, 17 years old at the time, uh, somewhere around there. It's a lifetime ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being in a foreign country with virtually zero supervision. Right. Uh, you know, it, uh, it really opened my eyes to what can I get into next? Right. <laughs> I love it. And I know that, uh, after high school, you jumped into your next chapter that took you, uh, to some very interesting places. Yeah, there was there was a little road bump in the middle of that. Uh, right after high school, I ended up getting a job with IBM mm-hmm. and uh, I moved to North Carolina and I was working at IBM. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't uh, I didn't fit in with IBM. I, I wasn't the standard look of the men in the black suit uh, and the sure. power tie. So, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of clashed with management. And one day after a, a rather terribly bad day at work. Uh, I rode my motorcycle home and on the way home, I saw a giant red sign that said uh, armed forces recruiting station. And, uh, I quickly pulled over and did a U-turn and, uh, rode into the parking lot and ended up talking to a, uh, an air force recruiter. And, uh, it seems just, uh, you know, a few days after that, uh, I'm signing paperwork and, they told me ah, it'll be, you know, several months. And then the phone rings and they were like, you know, about that several months. Uh, can you uh, can you go to basic training now? I'm wow. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you know, uh, from I, IBM to uh, to basic training, I was, uh, right? it was kind of a life changing experience right there. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a culture shock. Yeah. Oh my yeah, goodness. For sure. <laughs> I love how like things just seem to uh, happen so quickly for you and you you just kind of roll with it. <laughs> I, I did. I, I did a lot of uh, looking back and wondering how I lived through my, uh, my adolescent and teen and early adulthood. Mm. Uh, I, I probably yeah. shouldn't be here. <laughs> I mean, Hey, <laughs> everything happens for a reason. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Well, I'm glad that you are here. So tell me first where you're taking us today. Well, today I wanted to talk to you about uh, the country of Jordan, and uh, mm. it was through the military that I ended up in Jordan and had a, uh, a really, I guess you could say, entertaining, uh, interesting experience while in Jordan. Yeah, absolutely. So usually I ask people like, oh, what made you want to visit this region or what drew you <laughs> to this place? But uh, I guess it was just Uncle Sam, right? Yeah, it was it was a very unique, uh, unique situation. I was uh, part of a unit that was attached to JSOC, which is uh, Joint Special Operations Command. So we had the, uh, I guess you could say, privilege uh, benefit of traveling everywhere. Uh, If there was a hot spot, we would we would go to it. And we were always uh, maintaining our uh, our deployment bags, our go bags. And, you know, we had basically a 24 hour on call notice uh, to get to the flight line and uh, get on an aircraft at, uh, at 
moment's notice. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, we got a phone call and it was myself and nine other people in my team uh, got told, uh, hey, you're being activated and uh, you're, you're going to get deployed. So we, we grabbed our gear and we headed out to the aircraft and we got on board the aircraft. And most of the time, you know, this would happen a lot. And most of the time it was just an exercise. They would take us up in the air. They'd fly us around for 45 minutes, make sure that we had uh, all of our equipment uh, ready to go. And mm -hmm. they'd say, yeah, you, you pass the inspection and they turn around we'd go back home and have some popcorn and move on with the rest of the day. <laughs> But, uh, but this time the plane wasn't making a circle. Uh, we were, we were going somewhere. Uh, mm. and the next thing I know, we, we landed in, uh, Delaware and, uh, we had taken off from North Carolina and we mm. landed in Delaware and we were told to get off that plane and get on another one. And we had no idea where we were going. We had no idea oh what goodness. was going on. We get into the second aircraft. It was a C5 galaxy, which is, uh, one of the largest aircraft in the world. And uh, we got on board and there was dozens and dozens of other people on this aircraft and everybody was very somber, uh, unlike normal military deployments where everybody's cutting up and joking and mm -hmm. everybody just kind of kept their head down and, and they weren't talking much. And uh, we uh, we all felt like my team felt like we were kind of the odd men out because we had no idea what was going on. Oh, and, wow. Uh, it wasn't until we were airborne and over international waters before we were actually informed that we were being deployed to Jordan. Oh, my God. So once once we got to Jordan, we were told that uh, we were participating in a uh, joint forces exercise. But it became really clear really quick that uh, that this was not an exercise. This was a, a real world operation of of some sort. And we still didn't know what was happening because for an exercise, you're not issued live ammunition. And, you know, you you have safety folks walking around with white hats, making sure, sure that everybody's doing the right thing. And there was none of that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started looking around and I saw people from uh, the uh, uh, Naval Special Warfare Units, uh, the SEALs. I saw people from the uh, uh, 101st Airborne. I saw people from the, uh, the 75th Ranger Battalion. I, I saw people from the FBI. I even saw people wow. from the Department of Energy. And this oh was God. unlike any uh, military exercise right. uh, that uh, that I had ever been uh, tasked with. And That's uh, wild. What goes through your head at that moment? Like when you realize, oh man, this is real. <laughs> well, it, it it's... It's unique. I, I had served in Desert Storm and I had already mm -hmm. had a significant amount of time under my belt uh, in the Middle East. I had never been to Jordan. I had spent a considerable amount of time in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and some other places that uh, need not be named. But mm -hmm. uh, this this was truly very outside of what I would consider normal protocol and normal procedures. Yeah. And uh my team, it was just myself and nine other people. We got pulled into a briefing room and uh, we were we were told what we were going to be doing. And unlike anywhere else or any other deployment that I'd ever been on where the team that you deploy with is the team that you are attached to. You know, you, you've trained with these guys, you fight with these guys, you know how they act and react and, and you don't break up a team. Mm -hmm. But 
when we got there and we got into the briefing room, we all got separated. And uh, I was told to uh, to go with this other uh, group of folks. And I was taken very far out into the middle of the Jordanian desert where there was literally nothing around. Uh, there was no infrastructure, no power lines, no cities, no towns, no nothing. It was just literally desert. Wow. And uh, out there was two things. There was a tent and there was a giant wooden crate. And the, uh, the captain or major, whoever it was that had taken me out there said, this is your post. This is your position. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, that crate right there, guard the crate. I was like, against what? I'm, right. I mean, there's nothing here. Yeah, I need a little more context. <laughs> and and this crate was big. This this crate was a giant wooden crate that would have been big enough to basically park a Volkswagen bug inside of. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said, just guard the crate. And uh, I said, okay, but I mean, I don't have any operating procedures. I don't have any rules of engagement. I don't have anything. He just said, don't let anybody near the crate. It's like, okay, but what if somebody gets near the crate? It's like, shoot them. Oh man. I was like, okay. So definitively this is not a training exercise. This yeah, is, this this is, is not something a drill. Real. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I was not told what was in the crate and right. uh, there was only two of us out there. It was myself and another, another airman of, uh, of roughly the same rank that I was. And uh, we had no supervision. There was nobody inside the tent. We were just basically told, or we didn't know if there was anybody inside the tent, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, we were told not to go in the tent and just guard the crate. And we were out there for several nights. And it gets really boring. Um, you're, you're, I mean, there's nothing around. There's no sounds. You're in a restricted airspace, so there's no aircraft. There's uh, the, the, the desert has no clouds in that time in, in that area it was just us the sand and and the night sky right and this and, giant crate <laughs> and this giant crate and at that time uh luckily i have stopped but at that time i basically smoked two packs of cigarettes a day uh, yeah bad habit don't recommend it if, right. you do, if you do stop now yes um but you can't smoke while you're on post because just the even even the little light at the end of your cigarette, the little cherry at the end of your cigarette, if somebody's using night vision goggles, they can sure. pinpoint your location miles away. Wow. So I started to walk, oh, a couple hundred meters away from the crate and, uh, you know, crawl between a couple sand dunes and, and sit there and, and smoke my cigarette and then walk back over to the crate. I had I had no worry that anybody was going to sneak up on the crate because there was nobody around for <laughs> dozens, if not hundreds of miles in any direction. So as time goes on, you know, you just get more and more bored. And uh, I had been issued a set of night vision goggles. Mm -hmm. And one night I just kind of crawled onto the top of the sand dune and I sat down there and I put the night vision goggles on and I just started looking up at the sky and I don't know if you've ever used night vision goggles or not, but when when you look up at the night sky in an area that has zero light pollution, just with your naked eye, you can see thousands upon thousands of stars. Mm. But if you put on the night vision goggles, 
you can see millions upon millions of stars and it just it opens up the galaxy it is an incredible sight so i just laid there staring up into space looking at this vast array of of stars that i had never never had an opportunity to see before and it was probably a few minutes later that I saw something that has really changed the trajectory of my entire life after that. As I'm lying on my back, looking straight up into the sky, I saw a pinpoint of light that came from my six o'clock position behind me. Mm -hmm. And it shoots straight up to directly top dead center, directly over my position. And then it executes an immediate 90 degree turn and shoots off to my nine o'clock position. Whoa. And it traverses from horizon to horizon, or I should say it traverses from visible horizon to visible horizon Mm. because your, your night vision goggles only have about a 40 degree field of view. But when you're looking up in space, 40 degree field of view is huge. Sure. (laughs) Um, So it traversed this area with a 90 degree turn directly in the middle in under two seconds. And during the turn, it didn't slow down. It didn't stop. And it didn't seem to have a curve to the turn. It was like, it was like a perfect right angle turn with no depreciation and acceleration. Mm. And then I saw it again and I saw it again and again. And about that time, the other individual that was, uh, that was posted there with me, he comes over and I take the night vision goggles off and I hand them to him and I, I tell him to look up. And he's asking me, well, what am I looking for? I was like, <laughs> just, just look up. You'll, you'll know it when you, when you see it. Right. So he puts the night vision goggles on and he looks up and maybe a minute or so goes by and I don't see any reaction. And then all of a sudden I see his head drop and shoot over to the left. And I knew exactly that he had seen it. Oh, at that moment, he takes the night vision goggles off. He hands them back to me. He reaches into his pocket, lights a cigarette, walks back to the crate and doesn't say a word to me. Not a single word. (laughs) And this was a situation where I couldn't do anything about it. Because I had literally walked away from my post by about 100 meters or so against, mm-hmm. you know, the verbal orders that we had to go smoke a cigarette. So I couldn't sure. contact my superiors and say, hey, when I was when I was over there screwing around smoking a cigarette, I think I may have seen a UFO. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, I, I can't say those words. Uh huh. So I sat on this for years, literally oh, years. Wow. The Had to Be There podcast is brought to you by Vacations by Kelly, where your host becomes your travel agent. As a proud affiliate of Academy Travel, Kelly specializes in Disney destinations and can help with all non-Disney excursions worldwide as well. When you book with Kelly, you're getting much more than a travel agent. You're getting a personalized concierge-level travel partner. And the best part? Her services are completely free. It's true. So when you're ready to make your next travel dream a reality, Vacations by Kelly is ready to make it happen. Visit hadtobethere.net slash vacations to get started. Maybe about three or four years ago, I saw a television show on uh, on History Channel, and they were asking for 
military witnesses for things to come forward and and uh, explain their their sightings and things. And I did. And uh, it uh, it really kind of thrust me into this entire world of uh, of UFOs. And I've I've now been on four television shows, one movie, and I ended up building a vehicle that is chock full of some of the most advanced sensor technology uh, from thermal infrared uh, imaging to uh, aircraft trackers, passive radar, directional signal finding. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, I grew up watching Knight Rider (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, it's not nearly as, uh, as good looking as Knight Rider. It's kind of held together with uh, duct tape, uh, bubble gum and a little (laughs) bit of hope. But, uh, but I go out and now I try to, in my off time, I, I try to track anomalous objects and, and record any type of signals that I can get off of them. And then I pass that information over to some physicists that I know who analyze it and let me know if it's uh, anomalous enough to uh, warrant further investigation or if there's prosaic explanations for it. Oh my God, I have so many questions. <laughs> okay so before you had this experience did you uh i guess believe in any kind of life outside of our own world here um is that something like you were already open to or already had a belief in i don't think i would call it a belief i I think i would call it an open acceptance of the possibility. You know, okay. I, I grew up in the seventies and, and, and eighties sure. <laughs> and yeah. science fiction was everywhere. You know, star Wars in 1977 yeah. was one of the first movies that I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I grew up watching Battlestar Galactica and star Trek and things like that. So sure. I, I was fascinated by the idea of it. That something but, was out there. Yeah. yeah. But I never considered it a true possibility. And to this day, I still don't know what it is that I saw. I oh I can give you a list of things that I can definitively say that it is not. Right. <laughs> but I don't know what it was that it is or or what it is what it was. Um but but yeah, I I think I think that even if I hadn't been exposed to the the world of science fiction and things like that, just being in the Air Force and being trained on uh, aircraft identification and uh, domain awareness and situational mm-hmm. awareness and things like that, I think that this event would have been as equally strange and intriguing, even without having been exposed to the world of science fiction. Sure. Absolutely. So did this other guy that was with you, did, you just never spoke of this again? <laughs> never spoke of it again. And like I said, you know, my, my team that I deployed with, we were we were split up. So I didn't know this individual. Oh, never my God. I was going to ask, where is he now? I have questions yeah. for him, too. <laughs> no, I, I have no idea. And one of the things it, it was kind of a broken promise when I went on the first television show on the History Channel to uh, to talk about this. I had asked the producers of the television show because they have a lot of resources. They have investigators and things like that Mm, that verify these stories. And they did a full background check on me and everything. I had asked them to please help me try to find the individual that I was posted with because I wanted to validate my memory 
of the events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had agreed to do that. And once I went on camera and, and did my thing, it was kind of a, you know, a handshake and, you know, thanks for your time and never heard from them again. So wow. I, I still, I still would love to be able to find the individual that I was posted with. Oh my goodness. And when, when did this happen? This would have been in uh, late summer of 1995. Okay. It's, it's really interesting too, because in 1996, uh, John Deutsch, who was the director of national intelligence, he testified in front of Congress in 1996 about an incident that occurred in Jordan where Jordanian forces had intercepted uh, stolen Russian nuclear material and how the United States had taken custody of it. Through that testifying of John Deutsch and through some subsequent research that I did, my belief is that the crate that I was guarding was actually the recovered nuclear material that had been stolen out of the Soviet Union. Oh, my God. Because you have to you have to keep in mind that this is 1995. Yeah. Four, four years before that, the Soviet empire had collapsed. Right. And right. overnight, all these new nation states had sprung into existence. And the nuclear arsenal for the Soviet Union had been spread over that entire northern part of the continent. So now there's all these new nation states that have access to all this nuclear material and they have no allegiance anymore. They don't have the same allegiance, the same controls, the same security that the Soviet Union had put in place. Their money was worthless. They were starving. They tried to feed their families. So when Iraq, Iran, Syria, North Korea, or, or any terrorist organization would say, hey, I will pay you for access to this. Mm-hmm. Just leave the, leave the vault door open. Right. That's exactly what happened. I, I believe uh, in the same testimony, uh, Mr. Deutsch had said that there was over 600 missing nuclear weapons during the fall of the Soviet empire. And oh, that's terrifying. Most have been recovered, <laughs> if not all. But uh, but I do believe that the crate that I was guarding contained a a recovered nuclear material from from the, oh the Soviet God. Union, <laughs> and it it makes sense if you look at the history of some of these claims about UFO and UAP sightings. They tend. I'm not going to say they tend to occur, but there is a statistically higher uh, reporting of these things near nuclear uh, bases, near nuclear silos or uh, mm. nuclear powered aircraft carriers and things like that. So I'm I'm wondering in the back of my head still to this day, if the fact that there's now this nuclear radiation signature coming from the middle of the Jordanian desert that was never there before that if this was something that is potentially off world, if that was the signature that they found and they're like, Hey, that's not supposed to be there. We're going to go check it out. My eyes are the widest right now. I feel like they've ever been. I feel like I've forgotten how to blink. <laughs> Welcome oh, to my world. My God. <laughs> um, I, have, I have one last question about this and then we're going to, get back to being a travel podcast. Um, so, (laughs) so you, you built this, um, 
I want to call it Kit because that was Knight Rider, but I know that's not right. Um, yeah, it's called Osiris. Osiris, it, thank yeah, you. <laughs> it, Osiris stands for Off Road Scientific Investigation and Response Informatics System. Okay, and now from your use and practice with Osiris, um, how many events have you had to uh, have further investigation on and what kind of findings have you come into from that? Uh, There are two out of all the times that I've gone out in the field. uh, There Mm -hmm. are two that are significant. Uh, One was during the filming of the movie that I mentioned earlier. It's called a tear in the sky. And uh, I deployed out with a, a group of other scientific researchers uh, to the, uh, the coast of California, just off of uh, Catalina Island. Mm-hmm. And we were searching for uh, anomalous signatures in, in the sky because Catalina was the genesis point for the 2004 uh, Nimitz event when the FA-18 pilots reported seeing what is now referred to as the Tic Tac uh, they they originated from the Catalina area. So we went out there to try to see what we could find. And we had radiological measurement uh, devices. We had quantum random number generators. We had all the equipment on my vehicle. And uh, we, we collected data that uh, we have actually gotten third-party corroboration from NOAA uh, uh, National Oceanic uh, Atmosphere, National Atmospheric and Ocean. I, I don't even can't remember saying it. <laughs> Tongue tied. Um, anyway, we've gotten third party corroboration of the radar data of of what we recorded there, and and that is still being analyzed by physicists from uh, State University of New York in Albany. Wow. And then the uh, the other one is I was invited to. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or if your listeners would be familiar with it, but a place in Utah called Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, Skinwalker Ranch was uh, a uh, or is a hotspot, uh, purported hotspot of uh, of UFO activity. And we went out there and conducted an investigation and collected some pretty significant data from there as well. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm just like enthralled right now. <laughs> okay. But let me focus. <laughs> so this all happened in Jordan. Yes. Um, did you have any opportunity to explore the area at all? Cause I know that this is a place that like, for me, this has never been on my radar. Um, but I've talked to so many people who are big time travelers and explorers. And this is a place that they are so drawn to. I'm just wondering if you had the opportunity to experience any of it outside of this. I did. I did. Um, After the deployment was over, uh, we were kind of stuck in limbo uh, Mm. for, for several days. Uh, now keep in mind again, this is back in 1995 and the group that I was with was attached to JSOC joint special operations command. And we tend not to play by the rules a lot. (laughs) No. (laughs) So without having any assigned responsibilities or duties and, and this quote unquote exercise had terminated, um, we, uh, we, kind of rented a little minivan, uh, got into our civilian clothes, had our, uh, our concealed 
nine millimeter pistols and fanny packs and started <laughs> driving through Jordan. And uh, wow. we ended up in Petra, which mm-hmm. is fantastically amazing. It's uh, for your listeners that, that aren't familiar. Petra is where they, uh, they filmed several of the key scenes for Indiana Jones and the, uh, um, uh, I can't remember which one it was. If not the, not the arc, but the, uh, I cannot help you because I have never seen oh, an Indiana Jones movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't think of what, uh, it's one of the Indiana Jones movies. There's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. There's one that's a Temple of something. Tem- uh, Temple of Doom, I believe. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That's it. Look at so, me helping. There you go. So Petra is this giant thing that's carved into a solid rock wall. And looking at it from the outside, it looks exactly as it does in the movie. It's just this giant three or four story tall uh, edifice carved into this uh, this rock wall. Wow. And uh, I don't know what the use of it was for, but in that same area, there are ruins from old Roman Colosseums. And on the way to Petra, there's uh, ruins of old Spanish crusaders castles. And, wow. you know, I, I got a chance to, uh, to stop at the dead sea and try to drown myself unsuccessfully because you can't <laughs> sink in the dead sea. Right. And, right. You know, you, you, you have a life lesson when, uh, when you get out and you get dried off in the sun, your, your skin turns to cement because of all the salt. <gasps> so it's uh, but yeah, Jordan, Jordan is to me the antithesis of the rest of the Middle East. And, wow. You know, I've, I've been to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and like I said, some, yeah. some other places and Jordan does not look like or feel like any mm. of the other places that I've ever been in the Middle East. It, I enjoyed my time in Jordan uh, yeah. in comparison to other locations. Sure. Sure. Wow. That's so cool. I love that you got to, uh, explore a little bit and, um, you know, cause I feel like if, if you had just gone and stared at this crate and then gotten back on a plane and come home, <laughs> right. it, was, it, was really, it was really neat to, to walk through areas where I'm, I'm walking on a road that was built by the Roman empire and yeah. I'm in the middle East it's wild. It's just, and then you can see, you know, still standing sections of aqueducts that used to carry water uh, wow. to or from the Colosseum that that was there. And it was, it's just the architecture, the structures, yeah. the, the resiliency of the designs that that they were able to engineer is just absolutely brilliant. Incredible. Yeah. Do you know, um, do you have any kind of running tally as to how many places you've been able to, uh, experience. In my military service alone, I have gone to 22 different countries. Wow. And then in my civilian life Mm -hmm. outside of the military, I've been to, you know, mostly, uh, uh, pretty much all of South America, uh, and Central America. Oh, amazing. I I have a, a tremendous love for Venezuela uh, not mm-hmm. as of recently, uh, not a, not a safe place to be at the sure. present moment in time, but Venezuela at one point in time was one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. Wow. 
So let me ask you, uh, if I may, some of your favorites from these travels. Um, so I guess if we take Venezuela off the table, do you have a favorite country that today keeps calling you back? Panama. Ooh. Panama. I spent about a year, uh, maybe a year and a half in Panama. Now this was with the military also, mm-hmm. but, um, I had the privilege of being one of the last people to be assigned to the Air Force's mounted patrol. So I actually rode a horse uh, 12 to 16 hours a day through the Panamanian jungles as my military duties there in the Air Force. Wow! And, you know, riding a horse across the beach and through the jungles uh, around Howard Howard Air Force Base. And... uh, the uh, the work schedule that I had was uh, we called it the Panama shift. It was three days on, two days off, two days on, three days off. So every other weekend, you had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday free. Mm. And I took full advantage of that. And I would rent a car and I would drive across the country. I would go to the uh, the uh, coast over by Fort Sherman. I got certified uh, as a scuba diver. And then I got certified as an advanced open water scuba diver. Uh, I would drive it down to Costa Rica on my days off and go scuba mm. diving down there. So uh, Panama was absolutely brilliant. I, I love the culture. I love the colors. I love the music. Uh, the food was, was fantastic. It was my first introduction to ceviche. Um, mm. And I, I, I fell in love with Panama. Oh my God. Great answer. Do you have a favorite food or drink that you have discovered while traveling? Oh, it's funny because I have, I'm the guy that no matter what country I go to, one of the things that I try to do is I try to find an Irish pub and I try to oh rate, my God, how funny. I, I try to rate their fish and chips. I love this <laughs> so much. <laughs> and to be, believe it or not, the best Irish pub I have ever been to was not in Ireland. It was in Greece. It was in Athens. <gasps> really? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I love that. And had, had I known you were going to ask me that question, I would have, I would have found the picture and I would have pulled it up, but <laughs> I'm in the middle of Athens, Greece. You know, the, the Parthenon is there, Neptune's temple mm-hmm. and, and everything is down the road and I'm, I'm full of Masaka and, and uh, Uzo and and uh, my cousin and I were traveling on civilian life. Uh, we were traveling and uh, we uh, we stumbled across an Irish pub and uh, walked inside. We were the only two Americans there. And I think we opened the bar and closed the bar that night. Oh, my God. How funny. And it was it was absolutely brilliant. And being inside that Irish pub, you thought you were in Ireland. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Do you collect any souvenirs or keepsakes? And if so, do you have a favorite? I wish I did. Uh, One of my biggest regrets in the military is the fact that I didn't take enough pictures. Mm. Um, Mostly because the things that I was doing weren't necessarily conducive to photography. Sure, sure. Um, And one of the last things you're thinking of is, hey, I want to 
you know, memorialize this moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't have a lot of photos. You don't think about that when you're you, you young. Don't, you you're don't. You're going to live forever. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't think about it when you're young and you don't think about it when, when things are blowing up around you. you well, you sure. You, you <laughs> okay, <don't>. fine. That <laughs> too. <laughs> you got uh, me there, Jeremy. <laughs> so once, once my military service was over, I, I collect photographs. I, I learned, I taught myself digital photography and and I have mm. a nice Nikon and, and probably more lenses than a person should uh, rightfully own. And uh, <laughs> everywhere I go, I, I photograph everything. And I think some of my favorite photographs now are from when I was in the Galapagos islands, when I was living in Ecuador. Oh, I bet those are amazing. They, they truly are. The Galapagos is brilliantly perfect. Yeah. Oh man. One of my coworkers just got back from, uh, I think they did 10 or 11 days in the Galapagos. And I was like, Oh, do you have any pictures? And he sat down and went through every single one of his like 1500 pictures. <laughs> yeah. It's, I went, I went swimming with, uh, with sea lions. We would take a rope and we would chum the rope with, uh, with, uh, fish bait. Yeah. And then we would, uh, scuba dive down with, uh, with the sea lions and they'd play tug of war with us. Oh my God. How cute. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a great time. Wow. Which country or region that you visited has had the friendliest locals? Ooh, that's a good question. Canada. Canada is. Hey, you can't go wrong. The Canadians can't, can't go wrong with the Canadians. No, but I don't, I don't really consider. I know, I know it's a different country. I've, I'm fully cognizant of that, but I go, I don't consider that foreign travel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the friendliest people, and I think it was probably due to the situation at the time, the friendliest people I ever encountered were the kids that I was around in Kuwait because, mm. you know, we had just basically saved Kuwait from domination. Yeah. And uh, when we would drive our Humvees through the town, we would have to carry an inordinate amount of candy and chocolate bars because these kids would just run out of, every, it was like they would materialize like out of Star Trek, you know, there wouldn't be anybody there. And then the next thing you know, there'd be 250 kids and they'd all have their hand out and saying, you know, America, number one, Bush, number one, and oh God, things funny. like that. And we'd be throwing our M&M packets and our Hershey bars out. Uh -oh. at them. And it was, it was just absolutely heartwarming to see the kids in Kuwait. Oh, that's so precious. Is there no, I mean, you've been like everywhere, but is there anything still at the top of your travel travel bucket list that you haven't been able to cross off just yet? Uh, there's, there's three places that All I, right, that give I them really want to go. Um, <laughs> I want to go to China. Uh, I want to mm. go, I want to go to the Great Wall of China. Mm. Um, I think that has to be seen. Uh, yeah. I'm dying to get to Egypt. Um, Ooh. even though I've been to Egypt, I never made it off the military installation that we had. Yeah. There. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to carry a torch and walk through the pyramids in Giza. Yeah. Um, and then I want to go to Easter Island. Oh, that's a good one. I would love to go to Easter Island. Interesting. 
Those are great choices. <laughs> Do you have any plans in the works to make any of them happen yet? No, not not really. I if if I was single and without kids, I'd probably be there. But uh, <laughs> my my life is now consumed with uh, taking my my youngest daughter to her jujitsu classes and keeping up with school activities and, and all of that. But, uh, but I certainly do envision a day where I look at my wife and say, Hey hon, I I just found a, a way for us to get to Antarctica. Would you, would you like to take an expedition? Yeah. Oh man. I hope so. (laughs) Amazing. Jeremy, this has been truly illuminating. I cannot tell you how appreciative I am. Before I let you go, tell me where we can find you. What are you up to? Um, how can we connect? Sure. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my, uh, my Twitter handle is Osiris, U-A-P, O-S-I-R-I-S, and then the letters U-A-P. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't tweet a lot, but I'm there. And uh, then I also have a a YouTube channel where on occasion I will be able to sit down and interview an astronaut or I think uh, one of my most recent interviews was the uh, uh, the supervisor of the Vatican's uh, observatory. Wow. And I was, I was able to interview uh, that individual. Uh, so I've, t- I've talked to some astronauts. I've talked to uh, folks from the Vatican. Uh, I've interviewed... Uh, uh, quite a few interesting personalities. That's amazing. I will definitely include uh, links in the episode show notes so that we can all go and check that out. And that's uh, that's called the Osiris Project on YouTube. So you can look it up as the Osiris Project. Perfect. Jeremy, thank you so much again. This has just been such an incredible conversation. I cannot wait for people to hear it. (laughs) I hope that you will come back and chat with us again, maybe after you finally make it to Egypt or cross off one of these places on your list. I will send you a postcard from Easter Island. I Well, I might have to mail it when I get back to the mainland. I don't think they have post (laughs) offices there. (laughs) Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a it's been a wonderful experience here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to show your support is to rate or review us on whatever platform you're listening. And if this episode left you feeling like you just had to be there, reach out to Kelly to start planning an adventure of your own. Don't forget to follow us at Had to Be There 203 on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And visit our website, www.hadtobethere.net. Until next time, get out there and make your own had-to-be-there memories.